you know, he was understandably frustrated. I think those people who were complaining that he wasn't showing enough gratitude, you know, really need to cut the guy some slack. I mean, the country's fighting for its existence. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. NATO held a major summit in Vilnius, Lithuania on July 11th and 12th. Top on the agenda, of course, was Ukraine, including Ukraine's potential future NATO membership. Another key issue on the agenda was Sweden. Last year, both Sweden and Finland asked to join NATO. Finland is in, but Turkey had been blocking Sweden's membership. That abruptly changed in Vilnius, paving the way for all Nordic countries to become NATO members. Joining me to discuss what happened at this meeting and what the Vilnius summit suggests about the future of NATO is Jim Goldgeier, a professor of international relations at American University and a longtime scholar of NATO and transatlantic affairs. We kick off discussing the debate around Ukraine's potential membership before discussing many of the other issues on the agenda in Lithuania and what this meeting means for NATO's future and the war in Ukraine. A couple of quick announcements. If you are listening to this before July 18th and you are attending the Aspen Security Forum, then come say hi. I'll be there on the ground collecting some helpful interviews that I will bring to listeners in the near future. And if you're not going to be at the Aspen Security Forum, you can say hi anyway using the contact button on globaldispatches.org. While you're at globaldispatches.org, you can sign up for our free email newsletter. Thank you. Now, here is my conversation with Jim Goldgeier of American University. So the question of Ukraine's potential NATO membership was a key debate for Alliance members during the summit. What were the key issues driving that discussion and what was ultimately decided? I don't know if anything was ultimately decided because the key sentence in the summit communique that was issued on Tuesday was that an invitation will be issued to Ukraine when allies agree and conditions are met. So this was a rather vague 
statement to make reflecting the fact that there's disagreement within NATO, and especially because the United States, President Biden, has indicated that he's not on board with moving forward with Ukrainian membership in NATO. Now, the Allies had to do something to indicate progress beyond what was stated 15 years ago at their summit in Bucharest in 2008, when they said that Ukraine and Georgia will become members of NATO. So that suggested that these two countries would at some point become members of NATO. In the case of Ukraine, obviously that's become a more urgent issue because of the war. And the problem in Bucharest in 2008 was that there was no real path to membership that was given. They said that they want membership to happen some point in the future, but didn't give like steps along the way that Ukraine or Georgia could take to actually achieve membership back in 2008. Well, at that time, what NATO had developed for prospective members was something called the Membership Action Plan, the MAP. And the George W. Bush administration wanted to offer Ukraine and Georgia membership action plans, which would have been a clear sign that they were on a path. And at that time in 2008, the French and Germans did not support that idea. And so they ended up with that compromise language that was really the worst of all worlds because it promised that they would become members, but it didn't give them a path forward. So, you know, we've had that language for 15 years. And the question for this summit was, was there something they could do to go beyond that language? And so everyone, especially President Zelensky, was very focused on whether or not there would be any kind of timeline or clear process. And so there wasn't you know, when allies agree and conditions are met is pretty vague. One thing the allies did do to try to move beyond 2008 was to say that Ukraine has moved beyond the need for a membership action plan. And there was belief ahead of the summit that this was something that could be done because after all, Finland and Sweden in applying for membership did not have to go through the membership action plan process as Central and Eastern European countries had had to do. You know, Finland and Sweden are in a different position than a lot of the countries that were trying to join NATO in the 2000s. So the Allies did say that, although they also said that there's going to be, you know, reassessments of Ukraine's progress in the defense and democracy and security sectors. So it's still pretty vague. Well, is it fair to say that to the extent that there was any concrete movement on Ukraine's potential membership to NATO, it was that allies agreed that Ukraine did not need to go through this membership action plan step, that when allies agree and conditions are met, quote, those conditions would not include a membership action plan? Yes, I think it was important. And I think partly just to send a signal to Ukraine, look, this isn't going to be some never ending process. But certainly from the United States standpoint, and I think many of the other allies in Western Europe, I mean, the Eastern European countries really want this to happen sooner rather than later. I think, you know, for a lot of countries, the United States, France, Germany, especially the United States and Germany, they don't really want any talk of this while there's a war going on. And President Zelensky has indicated that he understands that. There's not going to be any kind of invitation issued while there is a war going on. So I think the U.S. and other allies like Germany really wanted to keep the focus on the assistance that's being provided to Ukraine for winning this war. 
Yeah, I think it's important to emphasize that sort of no one, Zelensky included, is sort of believing that membership to NATO would happen amidst an ongoing hot war with Russia. But generally speaking, you know, as you describe it, it seems that like the key divisions are that the Eastern European countries that are more on the front lines of a potential conflict with Russia are more keen to accelerate Ukraine's accession to NATO. And other countries, I suppose the Biden administration and countries in Western Europe, think that talk of Ukraine's NATO membership might, what, like undermine any potential negotiation with Russia? I think they just think it's premature. I think they just don't want to deal with it right now. You know, President Biden focused on providing assistance to help Ukraine liberate more territory, while at the same time, he's eager that there not be an escalation that would lead to a direct war between NATO and Russia. And he's tried to walk that line from February of 2022. And another outcome seems to be like a Ukraine-NATO council. Can you explain what the Ukraine-NATO council is and if there's any significance to the fact that it's been seemingly more formalized in this meeting? Well, again, I think what the allies were trying to do was just to give Ukraine more than it's had before. And this is a time-honored NATO tactic. I mean, they've been doing this throughout the whole enlargement process where they sort of come up with things that are designed to look like, okay, this is progress from where we were before. So there was a NATO-Ukraine commission. Now there's a NATO-Ukraine council. It met during the summit. And I think the goal is just, it, it was trying to show wherever possible that there's progress here so that Ukraine continues to have hope that someday it can join NATO. So aside from Ukraine's potential membership to NATO, another key issue on the docket during the summit was the question of Sweden's membership. Last year, Sweden and Finland both asked to join NATO. Finland got in, but Sweden's membership was held up by the government of Turkey, ostensibly because Turkey accuses Sweden of harboring what Ankara considers to be Kurdish terrorists. But Erdogan reversed himself and dropped Turkey's objection. Can you just Explain what happened and provide context for this seeming sudden reversal. You know, I think it's important to note, as both Turkey and Hungary have been holdouts on Sweden joining, that this has nothing to do with Sweden's qualifications to be a NATO member. I think that's unfortunate. You know, prospective members should be judged on whether or not they would, as Article 10 suggests of the original 1949 treaty that established NATO, that European countries can be invited to join when they meet the conditions for the principles of the alliance and can contribute to alliance security. And Sweden and Finland, it was very clear when they wanted to join that these are two countries that further the principles of the alliance and can contribute to alliance security. So this had nothing to do with Sweden's qualifications. President Erdogan took the opportunity to try to bargain. And he was trying to get some changes to Sweden's policies toward the Kurds and towards Kurdish groups that he is doing battle with. And then he's also wanted F-16s from the United States. And this has been held up for a variety of reasons. And presumably, as part of the end game of this negotiation, the Biden administration gave a credible commitment that the sale of F-16s can go forward. There does need to be congressional support. That 
commitment, though, that has not been public, but you suspect that's happened behind the scenes? I mean, there's got to be. I mean, that's what he's really wanted. And there's certainly been discussions with members of Congress. You know, there are senators who've been very clear. Senator Menendez, for example, has expressed concerns about this, expressed concerns. There are senators who have expressed concerns about Turkey's reliability as an ally. And Menendez is chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Right. And, you know, the Senate's made pretty clear that they didn't want to move forward unless Turkey was agreeing to Sweden joining NATO. So I think the Biden administration, in its conversations with the Senate and as part of these negotiations with Turkey, must have been able to pretty clearly say that this is going to move forward. That still requires a ratification by the Turkish parliament and also by the Hungarian parliament. So there's still opportunities for Erdogan to, you know, try to keep bargaining if he so desires. But I mean, I've thought all along at the end of the day, we would see this happen. It was just a question of what Erdogan would get in return. You know, what I've sort of found interesting about Erdogan's reversal and his decision to use the Lithuania summit to accede to Sweden's membership of NATO is that it comes on the heels of another action earlier in the week by Turkey seemingly to contravene the wishes of Russia, which was releasing a number of Ukrainian officers that were being held in Turkey as part of this deal that Turkey helped broker in Mariupol as as the city of Mariupol was under siege. A number of officers from Ukraine were able to like evacuate to Turkey and Turkey said that they would hold them pending the end of the war. But earlier this week, Turkey returned those officers to Ukraine in violation of its deal with Russia. And, you know, between that move, the decision by Turkey to let Sweden join NATO, you know, it seems that Erdogan is sort of more tightly binding himself to NATO and not playing this kind of fence-sitting role that he had earlier, which I found to be sort of an interesting outcome from this summit. Well, you know, I mean, he's always looking out for himself. He certainly has a reputation for playing all sides. And, you know, he has his NATO relationships and his U.S. relationship. He has his Ukraine relationship. He's got his relationship with Putin. But I think you're right that this provides an opportunity for NATO. You know, this is obviously the NATO-Turkey relationship has been quite strained in recent years. And I think that there's an opportunity here. You know, it's tough. I mean, Erdogan domestically has pursued an authoritarian path, and that has created great concerns within NATO. And we'll see what the prospects are for a you know, reassessment of the relationship of Turkey with NATO and what the possibilities are for a better relationship. Turkey is an important NATO member. It occupies an important strategic location. And there are a lot of people who get frustrated and say, oh, we should kick Turkey out of NATO. I mean, you know, first of all, there's no provision for kicking a country out of NATO. So that's not a realistic thing. But also Turkey's important. And so we may be seeing an opportunity for a closer relationship than there has been in recent years. So we're speaking a day after the summit ended. Are there any key outcomes or what's your top line takeaways from this meeting? Well, I think the big thing the Biden administration was seeking was a demonstration of unity among the allies. And we see that. I mean, NATO 
with Biden administration leadership is unified in supporting Ukraine against this Russian aggression. And I think that was the big important point. NATO support, the G7 announcement of long-term assistance for Ukraine was also very important. Can you explain that just a bit? Because we didn't touch on that just yet. The G7 met alongside NATO in Lithuania and made a, a more tangible commitment to providing money and arms for Ukraine's defense. Right. And and committing this for the long term. I mean, I think that's what the, Bi- the Biden administration and, and the NATO allies, the, the G7, want to send that signal to Putin that he can't outlast the West, that there's going to be support for Ukraine. It's going to continue. They don't want Putin thinking that the West is going to get tired of this. And that was a big piece of what the Biden administration wanted. That's why there was so much unhappiness on Tuesday when President Zelensky tweeted out his unhappiness with this statement in the declaration that an invitation will be issued when allies agree and conditions are met. You know, he was understandably frustrated. I think those people who were complaining that he wasn't showing enough gratitude, you know, really need to cut the guy some slack. I mean, the country's fighting for its existence. And of course, on Wednesday, he did do all the things that people wanted in terms of expressing gratitude for the support. And, and you know, Ukrainians are grateful for the support they're getting. And you know, we're not doing this as a philanthropic endeavor. We're doing this because it's in our interest to see Ukraine beat back this Russian aggression. So that was a big piece of, for the summit. Also, a big piece for the summit was really, you know, as a military alliance, the defense plans, defense spending, lots of ambitious things said, the regional defense plans, where you really, for the first time since the Cold War, have, you know, specific allies assigned to specific locations for the defense of NATO, a statement, this is, you know, we're approaching 2024, 10 years after the pledge in 2014, that NATO members would achieve 2% of their GDP on defense spending. Most allies don't meet that goal. This summit declaration said that this 2% would be considered a floor, not a ceiling. And so, There's a lot of aspiration in this document regarding planning, regarding investments, regarding defense production, regarding defense spending. We'll see whether or not they're met. There's a lot of aspirations in the document. Well, well, to that end, you've studied NATO for many years. Like, What does this summit suggest about what comes next for NATO? Well, I think it suggests that NATO really is serious about being a military alliance and defending NATO territory, you know, President Biden has often used the language about being prepared to defend every inch of NATO territory. I think NATO is showing with this document. And again, you know, proof is in the pudding in terms of what allies do. But I think it's pretty serious about being a military alliance and defending against this threat of Russian aggression. We also shouldn't lose sight of the fact that it is enhancing its Indo-Pacific partnerships. The summit in Madrid the year before was the first time that Japan, South Korea, Australia, and New Zealand had been invited, and they were back for this summit. And there are individual partnership plans that are being developed with each of those four Indo-Pacific partners. The one with Japan is the furthest along it's been agreed to, uh, and they'll be moving forward with that. And the other three are in process. 
And I think this is also very important that NATO establishes these closer ties with these Indo-Pacific partners at a time when people are seeing the connections between the European and Indo-Pacific theaters. Going forward in the coming weeks or months, you said earlier the proof will be in the pudding. Like, how will we know if the proof is in the pudding? Like, what are their indicators that we'll be looking towards that will suggest to you whether or not NATO is living up to some of the commitments on paper that it made during the summit? You know, we'll be looking for the defense spending. We'll be looking to see whether countries really are, have been falling short of the 2% or going to, you know, increase their defense spending. We'll be looking for the deployments of NATO troops in the East and the ability to really beef up the NATO presence in the frontline states. And there's also the announcement that had been made the year before by the Secretary General is about the ability of NATO to have high readiness forces that, you know, 300,000 that could be ready within 30 days of their being called. And that's something that NATO members, you know, need to be able to commit to so that they really have that capability. So I think people who, who watch NATO will be studying to see whether there is the kind of investment and defense development that the summit declaration calls for. Well, Jim, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. It's always great to speak with you, Mark. Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you have questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Before you go, do take a moment to show your support for the show by becoming a premium subscriber. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can do so with a couple taps of your thumb. If you're listening elsewhere, you can go to patreon.com slash globaldispatches. We rely on support from listeners to continue to do what we do far into the future. And by becoming a premium subscriber, you will unlock access to our entire archive of hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Please rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts. Podcasts.